0: Good evening and welcome. This is the fourth webinar from the Middle East Center in Oxford. My name is Eugene Rogan, and as director of the center, it's my great pleasure to be welcoming you to tonight's seminar presentation on Saudi Arabia. Our speakers will be Professor Madawi Rashid from the London School of Economics, author of the forthcoming book, The Sun King, Reform and Repression in Saudi Arabia, which will be due out in December of 2020. And Ben Hubbard, of the New York Times, whose most recent book, MBS, The Rise to Power of Mohammed bin Salman, has been on the lips of everybody talking about what is going on with Saudi Arabia under its influential and impetuous crown prince. Ben Madawi, what a pleasure to welcome you both to the Middle East Center's webinar. How would you like to begin? Did we ever agree in order of proceeding here? Are we starting with you, Madawi? Yes,
1: I think so. We're I should have known to... that before
0: we started. Please, the floor is yours. Welcome.
1: Thank you, uh, Eugene, and uh, thanks for this opportunity uh, at difficult times, but at least we can connect uh, through Zoom. I'll be talking about uh, my forthcoming book, The Sun King, but with a special reference to populist nationalism. Before I start, I would like to just set the scene by saying that the rise of MBS wasn't really in 2017 when he was appointed Crown Prince. It goes back a couple of years before that. And I see the rise of Mohammed bin Salman as a result of the Arab uprising in 2011, when Saudi Arabia, specifically uh, the ruling family, felt the pressure of the rising tide of protest in the region. And it was during the time of King Abdullah when the Saudi leadership looked a little bit lagging behind in terms of its reforms, in terms of its outlook. So Mohammed bin Salman, I think, was a product of that time when uh, the regime was in fear. And uh, also the Western allies of Saudi Arabia feared the outcome of the Arab uprisings reaching Saudi Arabia. So the search began to look for a young, energetic, a social reformer to become the face of Saudi Arabia and all that uh, was meant to come as a substitute or uh, to mitigate against any kind of political change reaching the kingdom. And based on that, I think the idea of Muhammad bin Salman springs from a, a kind of discourse that still adheres to a kind of oriental despotism, in the sense that uh, in order to reform the so-called conservative Saudi society, the so-called lazy Saudis, the so-called uh, religious fanatics in Saudi Arabia, there is an inevitability of repression and coercion for a new Saudi Arabia to emerge, meaning that a new a modern Saudi Arabia, but without the fundamental pillar of modernity, and that is political change and moving the political system from an absolute monarchy to something more in line with what was demanded across the region, across the Arab world. So Mohammed bin Salman was the choice. And Mohammed bin Salman uh, did a series of reforms, and we all know what these reforms are. They touched the fabric of the religious establishment, the religious sphere. They also uh, moved to the social fabrics of Saudi society in the sense that he uh, started a series of reforms when women can begin to drive um, there is an increased visibility of women. Uh, there is a fun culture introduced in the form of entertainment and also economic reforms, which were meant to move the state-centered uh, oil-based capitalist economy of Saudi Arabia that is tied to a global world of oil uh, consumers into a, a sort of a neoliberal economy where the state starts selling some of its assets. And this was all summed up in Vision 2030 and the National Transformation Programme. However, Part of that so-called reform was repression, hence my book's subtitle Reform and Repression in Saudi Arabia. I do challenge the, the idea that in order to reform Saudi Arabia politically, socially, economically, and religiously, you need a fair amount of repression and coercion. And I show that in addition to repression, which is actually documented, and I don't want to waste the short time I have discussing the abuse of human rights, the detention campaigns against members of his own family, uh, let alone the feminists, um, the activists, the Islamists, the professionals, intellectuals, etc. Even economists got got arrested. That is well documented. And anybody who's interested in that, they could consult um, Amnesty International. Human Rights Watch and the UN Council on Human Rights. What I want to focus on is on the subtle ways of making that kind of package, social, economic, religious reform, without political change, work in Saudi Arabia. And Mohammed bin Salman uh, launched a new kind of nationalism that I would call a hyper-nationalist narrative, summed up by hashtags on Twitter, such as Saudi Arabia is great, or make Saudi Arabia great, or even Saudi Arabia for Saudis. These are the the signs of this nationalism. But how did we get to here? As I have a side of me that likes history, I would say that um, the idea of Saudi uh, nationalism or nationalism in Saudi Arabia was actually deeply in flux. It wasn't taken for granted. Nationalism itself was contested. But if we look at Saudi Arabia in a diachronic way from the beginning of the 20th century, I identify three phases that bring in some kind of nationalism. The first one is religious nationalism that was associated with the Wahhabi tradition. The Wahhabi tradition was meant to homogenize society in the name of bringing it to the right Islamic path. And as such, it became the religious nationalism of Saudi Arabia. And we could discuss that in the QA. But this period, and it was actually at the beginning of the 20th century up to the 1960s, where all regions of Saudi Arabia had to be submerged uh, under the banner of becoming true Muslims. And as in Egypt, Syria, Iraq, Algeria, nationalism in its sort of secular in inverted commas version helped to homogenize the nation i think religious nationalism and wahhabism in particular played that role but it was actually based on a religious uh, dogma on religious text on ways of behaving ways of uh, conducting your legal affairs that had to be homogenized in saudi arabia in order to achieve the unity of Saudis as true Muslims. So so that was the first phase that lasted until the 1950s and late 1960s. Um, But then something else happened and Saudi Arabia thought that the Islamic utopia was created inside Saudi Arabia and there is no other ways to continue to Islamize society, to unify it under the banner of Wahhabism. So from the 1960s, because of a particular historical international context, Saudi Arabia shifted to a pan-Islamic identity. So pan-Islamism became the uh, pillar of what it means to be a Saudi. Saudis began to propagate the mission. So once the mission of the Islamic utopia was accomplished inside the country, there was a deliberate attempt to spread it around the world. And this was encouraged by an international context, specifically the Cold War, when Saudi Wahhabism became an arm of foreign policy, used and encouraged by countries like the United States, Britain, who saw in the propagation of the Islamic utopia a counter trend against the challenges of the 50, 60s and 70s with Arab nationalism, socialism, all the kind of forces of Abdel Nasser and others. So Saudi Arabia began to adopt this pan-Islamic identity and created institutions whereby the ethos of this pan-Islamism is embedded, such as Islamic universities, Islamic banking, Islamic youth organization. And this was done actually under uh, King Faisal. However, We come to 9 11, and it was the shock that this Saudi sponsored, Western approved, and encouraged type of pan Islamism led to kind of undesirable consequences, such as 9 11, the emergence of a global jihadi movement uh, that became a menace not only to the West. Uh, specifically to the U.S. in 9-11 and in other parts of, of the world, but also inside Saudi Arabia. Let's remember that Saudi Arabia went through a very, very bad period during the terrorism crisis, which started in 1979, but continued and became very, very acute between 2003 and 2008, when Saudi cities were targeted. So that kind of pan-Islamic identity was gradually being abandoned in order to create a Saudi, modern Saudi nation. And today, Mohammed bin Salman takes it further by promoting Saudi Arabia uh, and promoting Saudi nationalism. And the ingredients of this nationalism are different from uh, those that were used in the 20s, 30s, and then during the pan-Islamic period. So Mecca and Medina are no longer the pillars of this new Saudi nationalism. Uh, There is an attempt to find other sort of secular uh, sites for this nationalism, such as al-Ula, such as the archeological digging in terms of tourism, uh, pushing Saudis to appreciate their pre-Islamic heritage, the wahhabi pre the uh, uh, pan-islamic kind of uh, orientation and making it uh, more focused on other ingredients and of course like any national narrative the saudi one is in a state of flux all the time and it is based on forgetting and remembering like all nationalisms around the world but we are now in this particular period However, this populist nationalism that is encouraged today by the Crown Prince and it has its own uh, supporters is like any other nationalism. It tends to unite people, but also to divide them. It tends to include and exclude. And what is really interesting is this populist nationalism goes against the vision 2030 um, and the uh, sort of opening up of Saudi Arabia to global investment and capital and bringing a new entertainment that is really focused on uh, Western pop culture. So while he wants to uh, open up the economy, at the same time, there is this discourse that is directed against immigrants. And by immigrants, it's not only the the post-oil or post-Second World War II migration to Saudi Arabia. It is targeting also the people who had been living in Saudi Arabia for decades, such as people from the Caucasus, people from uh, China, people from Thailand who are Muslims living in Mecca. So this kind of nationalism has its dark side, like we all know, and we we have seen that, and it suffers from certain contradictions, like all nationalist narrative. First, let me just go through a list of certain kind of evidence to, to document what I'm talking about. So there is the empowerment of women, and women become the vanguards of this new Saudi national narrative because they are icons of modernity. At the same time, we see that women are promoted as ambassadors, as members of the Shura Council. There is a deliberate attempt to feminize the nation. But at the same time, the same nationalism doesn't allow a Saudi woman to give her nationality to her children if she's married to a foreigner. Um, There are several cases in the books where women are denied custody of their children whose fathers are not Saudis. At the same time, there is this sectarian discourse that is used in the war in Yemen. So the war in Yemen at the beginning to 2015 was projected as a jihad against those infidel Zaydis. There is also an invocation of genealogies and tribal belonging, especially in the dispute with Qatar, while at the same time we're supposed to be all uh, Saudis. Um, There is uh, actually a sinister side, and I should stop as Eugene is making signs that I should. There is the sinister side of this uh, nationalism that is leading to uh, a discourse about treason and criminality. And it is that populist nationalism that led to the murder of Jamal Khashoggi, It is uh, the nationalism that promotes and encourages citizens to become policemen. So the citizen policeman is an outcome of this nationalism. So to just conclude, I want to say that repression might be obvious and all regimes use, uh, such as the Saudi one, would use it to promote a new era, a new vision. Uh, And it is very obvious, you could document it, but what I'm talking about with populist nationalism is a subtle way of achieving a similar kind of outcome. Thank you for listening.
0: I'm sorry if
1: I exceeded my limit.
0: On the contrary, and I thank you for a very concise and brilliant analysis of where Saudi Arabia has come to arrive at this moment. I particularly like the way in which you periodize Saudi history because it so breaks with the way in which the crown prince has spun a kind of liberal Saudi Arabia before 1979, a post-1979 clampdown Saudi Arabia of very zealous religion, and then the new age he wants to usher in. So it's very good to have a kind of counterpoint to the official periodization of recent Saudi history. I'm sure it's a point we're going to come back to in the subsequent Q&A. And I'd like to hand on to, to Ben. The reason why I'm going to try and keep you both to sort of 10 to 15 minutes each, is just because we'll have a little discussion and then I wanna leave time, the questions are already coming in. So listeners, stick with us. We are definitely getting to your questions. Ben, over to you.
2: Yeah, I'll try to keep it short so we can do as much discussion as possible. I think that my experience with Saudi Arabia is certainly much shorter than uh, Dr. Madawi's. I mean, I basically, you know, as a Middle East correspondent working in the Middle East 2013, my editor said, I think, you know, I think you should try to go to Saudi Arabia. I got my first visa and I went and I spent a lot of time in the Arab world before that spoke Arabic. And so it wasn't completely new to me, but in terms of on the ground experience, it was a very new place. I had lived in Egypt and I traveled elsewhere, but Saudi Arabia, even if you were used to the Arab world was an incredibly different place. And sort of looking back now, you know, from, from 2020 to 2013 or to 2015, when Mohammed bin Salman really comes onto the scene we sometimes forget how dynamic of a period it has been and how much kind of accelerated change we've seen on so many fronts. When I went to Saudi Arabia before 2015, it was really a boring place. I mean, it was a place that was ruled by an elderly king. There was this idea of sort of this family council that would, you know, of the senior princes who would divide up the files and they would rule by consensus and, you know, and any sort of Saudi expert that you would talk to would tell you, you know, this is the way it is in Saudi Arabia and this is the way it's going to be. You obviously had deep social conservatism and you know music and arts and things like that were sort of looked down upon in a lot of places socially and also sort of from the from official narrative Saudi Arabia had you know influence in the region but it was always trying to exercise it behind the scenes you know sort of working behind the curtain and paying people off in various places but not sort of very activist foreign policy um, and this is kind of the way it was and so being a journalist going there it was a very sort of difficult you know you would go and there kind of wasn't all that much to see. It was sometimes hard to figure out what was going on. And then 2015 comes along and then, you know, we very quickly realized that sort of MBS was the kind of figure that we don't see in the Middle East very often. And one indicator of that is the fact that, you know, here he's been on the scene for five years. He's not the king of Saudi Arabia and there are already multiple books written about him, including my own. There are kings of Saudi Arabia who never had so many books written about them. So you know, it's been a time of, of dramatic change. And, you know, and I, I I won't sort of rehash a lot of the things that Madawi brought up about what we've seen, you know, socially, we've seen trying to sort of put large parts of conservative society back in the box, whether it's, you know, taking the power to arrest away from the religious police, extensive arrest campaigns against conservative clerics, there's obviously all the reforms that have had to do with the women, you know, things that to us may seem very common, but inside of Saudi Arabia, quite a big deal. Obviously women driving sort of got the most attention. Also things like allowing physical education classes for girls students. I mean, this is something that you didn't have in Saudi Arabia before and they're rolling these things out. You know, arts going from being sort of something that was considered Western and looked down upon in music, you know, now they're inviting almost any Western musician that they can to come perform in Saudi Arabia. Politically, it's also been a very dynamic time. You know, you can gauge that by the war in Yemen, Saudi Arabia had a large military, and they spent tens of billions of dollars on weapons from the United States, the UK, and other countries. But they have never in- intervened militarily in that kind of a way. And we, you know, within a few months, months of coming on the scene, when he was still deputy crown prince, you know, Mohammed bin Salman dispatched the Saudi military to intervene in Yemen, and they're still there. We've seen all sorts of other, you know, we can talk about sort of standoff with Iran across the region, the various ways the Saudis have done that, the famous. Uh, sort of detention and forced resignation of Saad Hariri in Lebanon, where I am. I mean, these are the kinds of things that nobody ever expected from Saudi Arabia before because they were never that assertive and never that, I think many people would say, aggressive. And I would agree with the, the, the subtitle of Mandawi's books that I think when you look back over this very quick succession of events, the two themes that really rise up are reform and repression. On one hand, there, has been, there have been dramatic changes in terms of social life in Saudi Arabia, There have been, I would say, at this point, at least dramatic initiatives to try to reform the economy. I don't think those have made as much progress, certainly as as Mohammed bin Salman or his his advisors would like. But there's certainly been a lot of attention put into that. But it's also been a time of great repression. Um, You know, I write in my book that Saudi Arabia used to be sort of a soft love autocracy. You know, you could get together with your friends and you could complain about this. And as long as you weren't sort of plotting protests or building a political party, they would kind of, you know... Likely to look the other way that's that's definitely changed now people are people are scared. A lot of the Saudis that I got to know during the time when I was going somewhat freely back and forth to the kingdom won't talk to me anymore. when they get together, they put their cell phones in the fridge because they're scared of electronic spying on their conversations. you've had there's all kinds of stories. Madawi mentioned a number of them. you know, there are people who have been basically disappeared from their families because they ran sarcastic Twitter accounts. I mean, this is something that you didn't have before in Saudi Arabia. So both of those things of reform and repression are, I think, the the two sort of biggest themes that we've seen. And then when you start thinking about Saudi Arabia into the future, and when we try to figure out sort of where is Saudi Arabia going, and where is Mohammed bin Salman going, I think it's what is the balance going to be between those two things? which I don't think that they're mutually exclusive, as many people in the West do. I think some people think that if you're a reformer, then you must also believe in democracy and political participation. I don't think that's the case. I think there's plenty of examples to the contrary. And I think in terms of, you know, I'll just, I'll just end on this. I think in terms of the future, I think, you know, Madawi spoke a lot about sort of the political challenges and, and what she expects to see on the political front. I, I think the largest, I think the biggest challenges to Mohammed bin Salman and everything that he wants to do are economic. I think he faces tremendous economic challenges. And even though I think he deserves some credit for, I would say addressing these head on in terms of defining the problem, diagnosing the problem, proposing a number of ways to try to get at this. I think it's, it's very difficult to overestimate the size of the economic challenge to Saudi Arabia. You know, you have a country, you know, two thirds of its population roughly is under age 30. You have hundreds of thousands of young Saudis entering the job market every year. And the government can't employ them anymore historically the saudi government has been the largest employer in the kingdom and they're they just don't have the money that they used to do and so you know you have vision 2030 and you have all these other efforts to find ways to diversify the economy and i think so far i don't think that the efforts have lived up to the size of the challenge certainly covid 19 is not going to make that any easier but for me sort of thinking about the future i mean i think we keep an eye on the reforms where does that go we keep an eye on the repression where does that go but for me, I mean, if I were Mohammed bin Samman, the thing that would keep me up at night would be the economy.
0: Then I'm going to take silence to mean completion. Yes, we can move on to the discussion. Well, thank you very much. Uh, again, a very tantalizing insight into the kind of issues that you are exploring at much greater length in your book. And I'd like to begin the discussion by bringing it back to the frame of analysis that our first speaker, Alaa El-Aswani, gave us. When he presented us with the dictatorship syndrome coming out of his experience in Egypt but something that he saw as more of a symptom of our times more broadly and I'm not trying to paint you into describing Saudi Arabia today as a dictatorship I think that there is an authoritarianism in Saudi Arabia which is quite distinct but I'm just wondering whether one element of Aswani's analysis could be brought into the discussion at this point which is the complicity of society as enablers of authoritarian rule. And I'm very struck. You spoke, Ben, about the fear that you've encountered, but I think there's a generation divide between those who are openly enthusiastic about a reform agenda that they see favoring them and their generation among the 30 and younger, and the people that I know who have shown concern or fear tend to be 40 and above. And so could we talk a little bit about society's role in enabling what is a five-extraordinary-year experiment under MBS, and, and whether there is a generational divide in that? Madhavi?
1: Yes, you're absolutely right, Eugene. I mean, um, before Alaa al-Aswani, we know that dictatorship or authoritarian rule uh, doesn't work on its own. It doesn't descend on people. You need to have enablers and you have to enlist a society, and we know from history of Europe in the 20th century, you know, fascism and all that, we, we know that, you know, the certain classes, certain categories of citizens participate in, in the drive to oppress and repress their own fellow citizens. But in my book, in The Sun King, I have done quite a lot of work on the rising uh, of diaspora. Saudi Arabia is experiencing an incipient diaspora, which it has not seen during the uh, you know, affluence of, of oil in, in the modern period, at least not in the 20th century. Uh, yes, we had one exile here and there, leaving, going to Egypt. Even princes left, uh, you know, the free princes left to went to Egypt, then Beirut and Iraq and other places. But what we have seen uh, since 2015 is the rise of a young Saudi diaspora. And this was actually intriguing. as the journalist told us mohammed bin salman appeals to this youth cohort he's a young man who who changes his nokia dumps the nokia te- uh, telephone and gets a smartphone and you see the crowds at the entertainment venues you think everybody is supporting mohammed bin salman But I was intrigued to find out why are women feminists leaving Saudi Arabia, artists? He created MISC, the MISC Foundation, in order to co-opt the artists. So why are artists leaving? We have young women now as asylum seekers in Canada, in the USA, in the Arab world, and as far as Australia. Also, we have young men who have actually left.
0: But these are not people enabling autocracy, if you like, these are people fleeing it. And I wonder whether we could talk about the role of society in encouraging or enabling the great enthusiasm that the under 30s are showing for the personality of MBS and the project.
1: Absolutely, you know, you have a society that has gone through the three phases, the two phases I described, the religious nationalism and the pan-Islamism. So in those phases, the person, the, the agency that is rewarded is the one who can recite the Quran at age 15, or the one who spreads the Wahhabi mission abroad and he's given prizes. But there is a generational shift, and that's not the work of Mohammed bin Salman. This shift had occurred, if you look at what the Saudis were doing in 2011, during the Arab uprising, their connectedness with, with their Arab fellows, the way they were uh, articulating their uh, demands for change, uh, you think that Mohammed bin Salman was just a fait accompli that came after the event, after the fact. Uh, the art scene in Saudi was prospering before Mohammed bin Salman. But this cohort had been denied basic human rights, basic entertainment. And it's so obvious that when you open up, you absorb that. And what Mohammed bin Salman is doing is, you know, combining the circus with the bread. But the bread had been stumbling. There's no bread anymore. And he's always asking the youth to be self-reliant. The welfare state is shrinking. So yes, there was the circus of Mohammed bin Salman and he was the only celebrity in that circus and everybody had to consume his persona, his celebrity status, and at the same time, enjoy the fun. But what they really wanted is jobs. I mean, if you look at the literature that is coming from Saudi Arabia, the unemployment level, People who are going to universities and top universities in the kingdom—they're worried; not they're not finding jobs. Um, well, such you as you're talking example, about
0: Mohammed bin Salman in the past tense here, which is a little optimistic. But let me bring Ben in here and see. Ben, did you have any reflections to add to this? Yeah, one thing I would say for context: I think
2: it's it's almost become sort of a you know it's a talking point that you hear all the time that sort of young Saudis love Mohammed bin Salman, older Saudi older Saudis are nervous about Mohammed bin Salman. And I think that that's true to a certain extent, but I think it's very difficult and almost impossible to know how true. You know, Saudi Arabia, let's, let's remember, is a place that does not have a free press. It has virtually no civil society that's not controlled by the government, which I guess would mean it's not civil society anyway. No sort of realistically independent, you know, um, public opinion polling. When journalists or think tankers or researchers go... Pretty, you know, people know what they're supposed to say. And unless you spend a lot of time there and you get to know people, they're unlikely to sort of tell you, you know, to stray from the official line because they know what the consequences of that could be. Certainly now, after all the repression that uh, we've, we've talked about previously. So I think it, I think it's difficult to generalize kind of about who is really on board and who is not. I think it's probably also not entirely correct to assume that all young Saudis are liberals. I'm sure that there are plenty of young conservative Saudis that Yeah, they might think it's cool to go to a movie theater, but then you ask them, well, what do you think about your sister going on a date? And then, you know, their blood pressure goes up and they're no longer as liberal as you thought they were. So I think, you know, I think we have to be very careful about sort of making these sweeping judgments about political opinion. I think we really just are about public opinion. I think we just don't know. And that is what makes it difficult to answer your question about sort of how, if you want to say sort of how culpable are citizens in the authoritarianism that's happening in Saudi Arabia I think the other thing that, I, that it's hard for people in the West to understand is really the tremendous power that the state has over people in Saudi Arabia. I mean, if you're in the West, if you're in the United States or in the UK, or you live somewhere in Europe and you want to be a dissident, I mean, what does that even mean? I mean, So you disagree with your government and maybe you're on Twitter you have a blog and your friends think you're kind of weird and your family you know, may not invite you to functions, but like nobody cares all that much. Saudi Arabia becoming a dissident is a major life commitment. I mean, if you're going to take that step, the state has all kinds of means that they can bring down on your head, and that they have increasingly not hesitated to bring down on your head since the throughout the rise of Muhammad bin Salman. This, this, a lot of this has to do with um, the power that the state has in the economy. When you look at the number of people who are employed by the state, whether it's in the National Guard, the security services, the bureaucracy it's not uncommon for when people sort of get out of line to receive a phone call and say, do you know how many of your brothers and cousins work for the government? And this happens. And and people know that like, well, if I don't get in line, that can fall back on my family in kind of a painful way. That's done through tribal structures in more rural or more conservative areas. That's, I mean, there's many different ways that they can do this that fall short of sort of what we usually think of a repression, which means they go out and they arrest you and they throw you in prison, which does happen, but there's a, a whole type of repression that happens below that, that we don't hear much about. And so that, you know, that that sort of makes it difficult to know who's really on board and who's not, because when the government has that much ability to kind of shape the way that you behave and the way that you behave publicly, then it sort of forces you to question, you know, when people are on social media praising them, this and that, or when people are getting viewed by some researcher who's managed to get a visa to go to Saudi Arabia, it's just very difficult to know. Are they saying what they know they're supposed to be saying? Are they really being frank with you? No. And it's- um, so, so, I, I mean, I, I just think we need to be a little, I mean, there are definitely plenty of citizens who are playing a role in the rise of Mohammed bin Salman, and, and, but I think we also need to recognize the tremendous power that the state has to sort of pull people in and to keep them from going outside of that. I mean, another great example of this is you just look at the life of Jamal Khashoggi. I mean, this was a guy who for decades was sort of the consummate insider. And we all know what happened to him when he decided to become an outsider.
0: Yeah, no, and as I was gonna say, it's not a country that's celebrated for its public opinion polling, although it must be said that public opinion polling is not as celebrated as it used to be. I'm gonna move on to questions. We have about 25 minutes left before we keep to our six, one hour limit to these uh, webinars. And the questions are coming in fast and furious. I already see 22 on the Q&A bar, but I'm going to start with one that uh, comes from Mohammed Lafuera's, largely because it's a question that I wanted to put to you, which is another enabler of Mohammed bin Salman's rule-breaking tendencies, his iconoclasm has been this age of rule breakers and no one more influential in that than Donald Trump. It looks like tonight is the night where we will have a final result that will allow Joe Biden to declare his victory in the presidency and that the age of Trump now seems to be coming to an end. Could you give us some sense of what the impact of that will be on Saudi Arabia and on Mohammed bin Salman? Will he now have to consider going more by the rules than he did before? Will will he no longer have the American support for his way of doing things that seem to facilitate? Ben, we might start with you, and then I'd like to go to Madawi. Yeah, I mean, I I really, as a news
2: reporter, I really have to stay out of fortune-telling business. Um, So I I won't, you know, we don't know who's going to win the election, and so I don't want to sort of go too far in saying what a President Joe Biden would or would not do. What we can safely say is that I do think it's safe to say that the Trump administration and its posture towards Saudi Arabia made things much easier for Mohammed bin Salman to basically do whatever he wanted to do. And this started very, very early in the administration when Trump basically surprised everybody by deciding to take his first foreign trip as president, not just one of the historic allies, but to go to Saudi Arabia. First time a president has ever done that. And the Saudis took this as a sign of, as a, of an investment in the relationship, which it was, and they turned it into a massive international summit for the United States and the Islamic world. And so that's kind of where it started off. And then, you know, you also have sort of the relationship between Jared Kushner and Mohammed bin Salman. There's been a lot written about that. You know, when we look at the election, I mean, it, it, it's hard to imagine that many other American presidents would have been as pre- as protective of the Saudis when it comes to things like arms sales and the Yemen war, where you have, I believe, two at least two presidential vetoes of legislation that was, that was aimed at stopping arms sales to Saudi Arabia based over the war in Yemen. When you look at the statements that came out of the White House after the killing of Jamal Khashoggi, basically saying, yeah, maybe he did it, maybe he didn't, but we don't really care because they're good friends of ours and we really need them. They're really important for us. It's really hard to imagine previous presidents, both Republican and Democrat, doing those kinds of actions. And there has been a lot, Biden has, he has gone on the record quite frequently being critical of the Saudis, both as a senator and during the campaign, saying, you know, we're not going to give them the free pass that they've had in the past. We're going to, you know, we're we're not going to look the other way at human rights violations. And, you know, of course, it's, it's difficult to know how campaign talks sort of survives the election and makes its way into policy. And so I think the big question, if there is a President Joe Biden starting in January, then I think the question is sort of how much will, will, will that talk be translated into policy? And how much will it just have been election talk? You know, This was a, a sort of a season when being friends with Saudi Arabia was not probably gonna win you a lot of votes. At the same time, it doesn't appear to have cost Donald Trump many votes. But that, that, that's the question that I would be wondering about if we have a change in Washington in January.
0: Mateo, I'm sure you have plenty to add to that question, but I have a number of questions specifically targeting you, and if I could, I'd like to move on to those, so we can yeah. address as many of our viewers' questions as possible. Mehdi Oscarier would like you to explain, now that the goals of Vision 2030 are unattainable, what can replace it, and what are the implications?
1: Well, I think the um, I mean, two important events in the last year that actually derailed Vision 2030. First one is the constant and continuous decline of oil prices, and the second thing was COVID, that uh, closed uh, Saudi Arabia to even pilgrimage, uh, let alone tourism and uh, entertainment and travel. But also before these two hit hard, there was uh, Jamal Khashoggi's murder that actually dissuaded many uh, investors to rush to Saudi Arabia, although the three conferences held after the murder of Khashoggi did see some uh, opportunists who want to actually make the most of this narrow opportunity after others had fallen out of of the investment conferences. So yes, Vision 2030 is still there, but it hasn't uh, materialized in the way Mohammed bin Salman would have liked it to. And the future, I think, lies in in really what, what happens to oil prices and how long this COVID problem is going to last in addition to the changing climate around the world and specifically in the U.S. I mean Ben talked about a change of leadership if it happens in the U.S. by January obviously Mohammed bin Salman will feel the pressure not because Biden is going to correct you know 70 years of American foreign policy in the Middle East But he would make enough noise, for example, uh, that may lead, and some people hope that the noises that Biden might make would lead to freeing some kind of prisoners of conscience, uh, opening up the freedom of, limited freedom of speech in Saudi Arabia. But I don't see a major change that Biden is capable of doing. He's not going to shun Saudi Arabia now. I mean, the whole world economy is is a disaster. And the last thing that the US wants is to sort of put more pressure on Saudi Arabia. So let's be realistic, a Democrat in the White House is not going to transform this sort of historical so-called historical alliance. Uh, obviously, the U.S. will continue to sell arms to Saudi Arabia, especially if we have a predatory China and Russia. What might happen is Saudi Arabia would be put under more pressure to reach a kind of reconciliation with Iran and uh, uh, lower the threshold of violence in the in the Arab world and the competition between the two countries. So it, th- th- I think that is important. And uh, then there remains the question that Uh, of the normalization with Israel. I don't know whether Biden will go along the same path treaded by uh, Trump and put more pressure on uh, uh, Saudi Arabia to follow the UAE, Bahrain, Sudan, and the
0: others. Let me stop you there only to throw another question at you. This one from Anne Irfan. She would like you to expand on the elements of MBS's promoted nationalism that make it populist. So could you develop that part of your discussion about the populist side of MBS's nationalism?
1: It is populist because it it fires at people very much like what Trump has been doing, really. I mean, uh, these hashtags that he uses, uh, Saudi Arabia for Saudis, make Saudi Arabia great, Saudi al-Udhmah, all these uh, are, are tagged and ha- hashtags uh, that promote this kind of, of populism. Uh, his appearances uh, during sort of entertainment venues when people are supposed to actually w- watch what is going on, whether it's a boxing match or a race uh, car, and Sadriva is going to host Formula One for the first time. These are the events that are used for this populist nationalism to appeal to the primitive sort of bottom line of people's uh, emotions. Um, And it's not a kind of nationalism that, you know, is similar to what Michel Aflaq was doing in Syria and Iraq, that uh, tries to sort of rewrite the history of the Arab nation or uh, even. It is a kind of primitive uh, populist nationalism for consumption, instantaneous consumption, and social media helps with that. Uh, So I don't see this rigid nationalism of the 1960s. I see a different kind of nationalism that is in tune with the means of its own transmission that works on social media, that works uh, on television, that works in in these kind of live uh, venues. Um, and it, it, lacks, it lacks a serious theorization, and it's very, very contested. The people who can talk, they still can't switch and I interviewed people who were of the older generation, but they're not very old. They're still in their forties and fifties. And they were saying like, you know, I remember when I was a child at school, I had to chant Islamic recitations and anashid uh, to promote the ummah, the Islamic ummah and promote Palestine and Jerusalem. And now I'm expected to promote al-Ula or, uh, and it is not easy for people to switch from that kind of pan-Islamic outlook of the Saudis are the vanguards who go and spread Islam. They're not the ones who consume, you know, uh, pop culture inside the country. And and this is the kind of populism that is actually very, very crude and basic. Thank you. But but it has the power. It has the power to mobilize.
0: As we've seen. Uh, I've got a couple of questions I'd like to bat your way, Ben. First off, from Dr. Sarah El-Rishani, who are Mohammed bin Salman's rivals in Saudi Arabia today, and do they still present a credible challenge after the sojourn in the Ritz-Carlton? I mean, I,
2: I think from what, from what we know, I don't think he has any serious rivals to speak of. I mean, you could say, you know, Mohammed bin Nayef was, was a rival for a period. Uh, you know, maybe Muttab bin Abdullah was a rival for a period. I mean, these were just because these were other people who were kind of in senior positions in the royal family and had significant government positions as well. But they were all you know, these these people were all sufficiently sort of disarmed, isolated, in some cases incarcerated fairly early in his rise. And I just, you know, I mean, I don't want to say that I think it's over for Mohammed bin Saman, but it's if there is going to be a significant challenge, it's very hard to see where it would come from now. Saudi Arabia is not, you know, certainly has no history of sort of military coups or anything like that. It's, it's very difficult to see. I mean, the fact that he has managed during his rise to really restructure how power is exercised and bring all the levers into his own hands. I mean, from the National Guard to the intelligence services, the, the interior ministry, the military, it's just very hard to see that even if there are other, and there certainly are other princes who are not happy with the way this has happened, it's very hard to see where they're going to get the resources to uh, pose a significant challenge to him.
0: And building on that, I mean, do you foresee there being any flashpoint for opposition in the long run over the Saudi intervention in Yemen? Does this fit into the narrative of populist nationalism? Are there comparisons to be made between what Saudi Arabia is going through and what's gone on in the Vietnam War? By extension, could there be a kind of movement against the war which would weigh down MBS and his popularity?
1: Do um, you want me to answer that,
0: Eugene? But we, I'd love to hear from you.
1: Yeah, I mean, the, at the beginning, the war of Yemen was probably uh, the flagship of Mohammed bin Salman, in inverted commas, because it is that context that uh, sort of promoted this populist nationalism that we are attacked. But you have to realize that in Saudi Arabia, Yemen is a very long way, and it was not felt, the war, uh, in Riyadh, Mecca, Jeddah, Damam, the eastern province, as much as it would have had, had there been you know, close proximity. But it did become real when the Houthi missiles started arriving in Riyadh and in Jeddah and also the oil fields were bombed. It did create that momentum, that sort of uh, moment where we are targeted by the foreign enemy. And there was a lot of solidarity, but the the whole point of the war of Yemen is, is not discussed. You cannot criticize the war. You do not know even what's going on uh, on the borders. And you have to look at that sort of area, Najran, Jazan, all of that, and what has happened in it. There are lots of exiles who had come out of that area, and there is a shift. In the population, composition of these places, many, many of the local inhabitants had been moved to the north, and it actually started during the uh, King Abdullah when there was an incident with the Ismaili community. Uh, also, the residents uh, there, the people who live in these areas, are very, very upset that their, that their area is flooded by foreign soldiers, Pakistanis, Jordanians, Egyptians, uh, generals. And they they don't feel secure being there. They they, they told me in these interviews that they they don't want their daughters to go in the streets because they're foreign soldiers in in these cities on, on the border. So the war in Yemen is, it was important for the, uh, the, the populist nationalism, and it was used quite a lot to the extent of sending women journalists with the army, in addition to religious scholars, to promote Saudi nationalism. And you see women in military attire on, on top of tanks reporting and, and talking to the soldiers. So this is the popular populist nationalism I'm talking about. And in addition, you get a, a traditional religious scholar who would go to the front and mobilize the soldiers on the basis that they are fighting a jihad against, against the Zaidi Houthis. So the, the, all these contradictions are there, but it's very difficult to see how the war on Yemen uh, would precipitate any kind of agitations inside the country. First, people can't actually give their opinion about the war.
0: Thank you, Badawi. Ben, I'm sure you could answer that one, but I'm gonna add another one your way to keep the questions moving. We have from Diana Galayeva, a question about Saudi-Russian relations. And what do you see the future of relations between Saudi Arabia and Russia, given the close ties between Putin and MBS?
2: Yeah, I'm afraid I don't have probably a very sophisticated answer for that. I mean, I the only context I could provide is that, you know, MBS has has made an effort to sort of diversify Saudi Arabia's foreign relations. And this has includes sort of high profile trips to China. The king himself actually went to Russia, which was a huge, you know, that was that was something that had not happened for many, many decades where it goes in the future, I don't know. I mean, I won't, won't try to predict that. But I think that MBS has sort of seen, I think part of it has to do with you sort of diversifying away from just being so dependent on the United States and the UK. And I also think it has to do with him, you know, perhaps plays into the, the sort of nationalism idea. But I think he also wants Saudi Arabia to be a great power. He, you know, he's very, they're, they're very excited this year to get the presidency of the G20. And and I think that he believes, as you know, for Saudi Arabia to play what he believes is their proper role in the world, they need to have relations with these other large powers. Where it goes in the future, I don't know. I mean, certainly the oil war didn't particularly help. The price war earlier this year certainly didn't help relations, but um, we'll have to wait and see where it goes.
0: Thank you, Ben. Look, I'm going to confess at this point to our viewers that I'm a bit of an interloper tonight. As both Ben and Madawi know, this event was organized by my colleague, Osama al-Azami, and he was meant to be the moderator, and his technology has failed him until this moment. I can see his face now on the screen. And actually, I've had a number of the questions in the question bar coming from Osama. So better late than never, Osama, could I invite you to ask one of your questions to bring the evening to a close?
3: Thank you very much, Eugene, and I I apologize to everyone. I spent a great deal of time on social media saying that I would be hosting this event. So it is a bit of an embarrassment for me that I'm showing up so late to my own sort of event but I've really been delighted to be able to listen to both of you, learn a great deal. I'm really looking forward to Madawi's book, and I have had a wonderful experience reading Ben's book uh, probably around four or five months ago now. But in a sense, my question, I think, or some of my questions have already been answered. My my major sort of question was relating to the possibility that something would actually happen with respect to Jamal Khashoggi, and I think that that has kind of been addressed, That uh, and I, I think... Um, I I can recognize Madawi's point that there's not really much in it for a Biden presidency to try and um, sort of go for that. Another dimension which I'm curious about is what a potential Biden presidency would do with respect to the relationship with Israel. As you all know, uh, fairly recently, the embassy was moved to Jerusalem. Is there a chance that Biden will try to reset that relationship somewhat with Netanyahu? by trying to move the embassy away from it, or is that now a fait accompli? Uh, this is a question for either one of you, it's not actually, uh, but I, I would be interested to hear Ben's response, perhaps, um, as the uh, American. <laughs> in,
2: in yeah, the I mean, I, I, I mean, I certainly can't predict what a potential Biden as president would do. I don't see any reason to, I mean, I, I don't know if a future administration would pursue uh, normalization, new normalization deals kind of as assertively as the Trump administration has, I certainly have no reason to think that a, a different administration would, you know, look down on these deals or try to undo them or would not even welcome further deals, you know. I mean, if, if Saudi Arabia decided to, to normalize with Israel, I don't think a Biden administration is going to condemn that or be, you know, that's something that I think they would welcome as well. So I, I don't know if I can say much more how he would interact with Netanyahu, I don't, we'd have to wait and see.
3: Um, right, and I don't know if Madawi you wanted to add anything to that.
1: I think the, uh, the pressure will probably be less on MBS to rush to a normalization right. uh, along the lines uh, of, of the one with the UAE and Bahrain and Sudan. Um, so, I think Mohammed bin Salman will be relieved uh, if Biden doesn't put pressure because he could maintain secret under the table relations with Israel, which had been going on for a long time now, especially if, if the target is Iran, they share intelligence, they, they, there's a transfer of technology. Um, and he prefers to keep it that way. But to, I mean, to think that Mohammed bin Salman is going to rush and you know, have the Israeli flag in Riyadh. Uh, Just to sort of uh, move fast. I don't think, I think his loss, uh, he will be counting his loss and and he gains more by, by keeping the relationship under the table. There's no rush to do anything about that. And um, so uh, he might face uh, some pressure with regard to um, the repression that is taking place at home. And uh, we, we still don't know what the um, advisors to Trump, uh, to Biden, sorry, should he become the president um, in a couple of months, uh, whether they will revive their interest, um, uh, those, those, uh, the, the arms of the US state such as the CIA or uh, other, uh, the the foreign office, whether they would revise um, uh, their interest in Mohammed bin Naif, although Mohammed bin Naif seems to me as redundant now, simply on the basis of his cooperation in the war uh, of terror. He had medals from uh, the CIA, et cetera. And as Europe now is going through a wave of terrorism, I don't know how that is going to develop um, and whether the U.S. will be the next or the coming target um, and how would uh, Biden react to that. We have to wait and see. It's
3: very difficult to predict. I mean, in some sense, the Biden presidency could be a boon to Mohammed Salman despite all the ways in which, um, I mean with respect to Israel specifically, I think that's what you're suggesting that it actually relieves some of the pressure uh,
1: yeah. of
3: having to maintain that cordial relationship with the Trumps and Jared Kushner and all the rest of them. I think uh, at the same time the sort of other aspects of that relationship that you outlined can create other kinds of pressures that perhaps weren't present under a Trump presidency. I'm really conscious we have uh, literally one minute left. I'm very curious about one particular question which either of you can take and I if Eugene gives me the signal I will go, <laughs> go on with this question which is perfect thank you Eugene and um, basically this is about the relationship with Abu Dhabi and specifically with MBZ. So Viras Joshi asks much has been made of MBZ in Abu Dhabi being a mentor of MBS indeed many think that MBS, uh, MBZ is the brains behind MBS uh, MBS's sort of rise. Does this crude populist brand of populism also manifest in the UAE? And if so, how do the two relate to each other, particularly in the context of the war in Yemen?
1: Yeah, well, um, I think populist nationalism is also elsewhere in right. the region, uh, Qatar, in, in uh, especially under the uh, uh, sanctions of, of the Saudis and the Emiratis. But I think, I, I mean, your question reminds me of a conversation I had with Emirati academic a long time ago, mm. and I asked him, you know, what is it for uh, the UAE to promote Mohammed bin Salman, and uh, uh, eventually he's going to be a competitor, I mean, the Saudi, economically, in terms of the Saudi market, in terms of the capabilities, yes, the UAE is important, but it is a small country in the grand scheme of things and doesn't have the historical sort of symbolic capital that that Saudi Arabia has. Mm. And he said to me, it is basically uh, the Arab uprisings. Mm. And if the Arab uprisings Um, reach Saudi Arabia, then they become a danger in the UAE. Um, And uh, if if we wanted to defeat the Wahhabi tradition that threatens our way of life in Dubai and elsewhere, we have to defeat it in Saudi Arabia. Hence, the interest of MBZ in MBS, and uh, if MBS continues with his social reforms.
3: Thank you very much. I mean um, that really is an interesting perspective because it's looking at the Wahhabi dimension as being a major concern for MBZ specifically and that's not an analysis that you've come across very often. I'm going to very sadly have to bring things to a a swift conclusion at this point. I'd like to um, extend my thanks to uh, Madawi and Ben for really giving us uh, a lot of food for thought and I hope encouraging many of us to go out and uh, read their books uh, or in the case of Madawi her forthcoming book. She, she edited a volume, of course, on Salman's legacy recently. And uh, I'd also like to extend a very warm thanks to Eugene for really rescuing this podcast when my system crashed on me earlier this evening. Uh, you've all re- really been sort of a wonderful audience as well, asking many questions. We're very sorry not to have been able to go through all of them, but I'm, I'm sure there will be future opportunities in which we can have more discussions with some of uh, our own guests and and some of the same sorts of themes uh, going forward so with that i would like to again thank you all for joining us thank the, the panelists and look forward to seeing you in the near future take care Bye bye